everyone, and welcome to the Boris IP VIP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're speaking with Maureen Kelly, who's an associate at the Pittsburgh office of Boris Sater, Seymour, and Pease, and a member of the Intellectual Property and Technology Group. Maureen will be discussing trademarks at both the federal and state levels and providing tips for those wondering if seeking registered trademark protection is advisable or even worth the effort. This episode will be good for those wanting to learn about basic trademark laws and principles, but also those generally familiar with trademarks may also learn or relearn a few things. And now here's my conversation with Maureen. All right, we're pleased to have Maureen Kelly with us. She is an associate out of the Pittsburgh office. She's got a degree from the Colorado College in philosophy and Russian. And then subsequently she went to the Boston College to get her Juris Doctorate. And she practices in the trademark group of the intellectual property group here at Voorhees. Maureen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Well, today we're going to talk about trademarks, and this is trademark basics. So essentially what uh, we're going to gear this discussion to is towards listeners who are generally unfamiliar with trademarks and trademark law, but who want to understand the benefits and maybe some of the basic details of, of how they can protect or own a trademark. So some trademarks that I think are kind of interesting, people don't understand that you can trademark things like colors and trademark scents and sounds. I mean, some of the colors we know, the orange background of the Reese's peanut butter cups is trademarked. The magenta color that T-Mobile has is trademarked. In fact, gestures like Usain Bolt's lightning bolt victory move, that victory move has actually been trademarked. The, uh, the scent of the Play-Doh, play wheat-based dough that they make has actually been trademarked. And even sounds like Tarzan's yell has been trademarked. So, so, so there's a broad breadth of, of what we can trademark. I'm not sure if you have any that you think are interesting that have been trademarked, but maybe I'll turn the time over to you and, and I'll let you talk a little on that. Sure. You definitely listed some interesting ones, some of the more unusual types. One that I thought was really interesting was the, the red sole of the Christian Louboutin shoes. It's actually sparked a lot of litigation in different jurisdictions with different standards of, about what's trademarkable, but it's recognizable. I mean, if you see red sold shoes, you, you'll you generally be able to identify the, the origin of those shoes as Christian Louboutin. Right. So we see lots of things can be trademarked. And so Maureen, kind of give us an idea of what exactly is a trademark, because I think that we just broadened the, the scope to what most people think is a trademark as a name or maybe a logo, but it can be much mm-hmm. broader than that. Correct. A lot of things could be trademarks. You know, I'd venture to say anything. I don't know if it's that broad, but anything that identifies goods, the origin of goods or services. So you're correct. Most commonly, it would be a word, phrase, symbol, or design, but it could be a sound. It could be a smell. It could be product packaging. It could be a color. It's the thing that customers used to recognize a product's origin in the marketplace and to distinguish those products from third parties products. Right, right. So if I'm somebody that came up with something new, you know, a logo, a brand, something along those lines, I want to protect it. How, how exactly would I go about obtaining a valid trademark? So trademark rights stem from use rather than registration. If you begin using a mark without even going about a registration process at all, you acquire some rights to it. Those are called common law rights or unregistered trademark rights. Those rights only exist in the geographical area where the mark has been in use. Bigger companies or parties who are planning to use their brands across state lines would probably want to consider seeking a federal trademark registration. If you are able to obtain a federal registration, your rights become valid in all 50 states. Right. So you're telling me that registration isn't required to be able to have rights. 
That is correct. It's not required. However, it does confer a number of benefits on the trademark registrant. Right. So if I just have common law rights, if I'm a mom and pop shop out of, you know, middle of Texas somewhere, and if I have a uh, unregistered mark, but I've been using it for decades, I mean, how, how does that help me? So you would be able to exclude others in that region from using a similar or the same mark for the same goods or services. However, if there was somebody in Pennsylvania where I am using the same name for the same goods or services, also with unregistered rights, neither party would be able to do anything about the other party as long as their use doesn't overlap in the geographical area. Right. So it, there is a benefit to registering this um, either federally or on the state level. What, what are some of the advantages that you gain from getting a federal registration, first of all? So a federal registration is certainly the most valuable. It enables the owner the right to bring a lawsuit concerning the trademark in federal court. So you can sue for federal trademark infringement in federal court. The mark will be listed in the United States Patent and Trademark Office's public database. So it, it serves sort of a notice function. It lets other third parties know, hey, I have this registration. You can't come along and use a similar or the same mark for the same goods and services. It creates a legal presumption that the owner owns the trademark and has rights to use it. So without that registration, say you sue in state court for state law trademark infringement, you would have more of an uphill battle to prove that you're the owner of the mark, that you've been using it continuously in commerce. You'd have to document that use. The federal registration enables you to get around that by creating that presumption. Well, you got a little into state trademark. Do you recommend that people file state trademark registrations? Sure. If you don't have plans to move across state lines with your goods and services, a state trademark may be appropriate. It really depends. There are certain services that qualify as use in interstate commerce, even if you aren't technically selling your services across state lines. And so it's really a case-by-case -case basis. But if you know that your geographical use will be limited to a particular state and you may not be able to get a federal registration, it may be a good backup plan. So if somebody is unable to get a federal trademark registration, would it be advisable to seek a state trademark registration? So in certain circumstances, possibly. However, I want to add that if a federal registration is unavailable, oftentimes that will be because a third party is already using a similar mark or has registered and is using a similar mark, in which case seeking a state registration doesn't really give you any leg up against that party and doesn't confer on you any, any real additional rights to use a mark. So I, I want to caution people that if a trademark attorney tells you a federal registration is unlikely to be granted because there's earlier registration that's similar to what you're proposing that will block your registration, seeking a state isn't a good sort of fallback, generally speaking. Federal registration, you work with actually a federal trademark attorney and they go through the process of examining. How about a state registration? I believe that most state trademark examination is done by the Secretary of State, and it's not as in-depth of an examination process. It's a state-by-state -state process, but, you know, federal trademark registration, the, the what's called prosecution process has a number of stages, and right. um, part of that is publication on a federal trademark register, which 
doesn't happen in the, at the state level. Okay. Yeah, the reason I got into that, because I think there's there's a lot of people that think, well, let's just market or at least use this mark in the state. But it's been my experience that we would typically recommend to clients, we'd advise them to go federal if you can. If you, if, I mean, most people have their business online anyway, that qualifies you to get uh, federal trademark protection. So you talked about a little bit about it up to this point. Can you talk to me some more about what the characteristics, what does a trademark require to be able to pass the rigorous examination process in the United States Patent and Trademark Office? Sure. So a, a cornerstone principle of trademark law is that a mark requires some level of distinctiveness in order to qualify as capable of identifying source. So generic names are categorically ineligible for trademark registration. For example, you can't register the word clock for your clock products. There's a reason for that. We don't want to, but part of, part of what a trademark right confers is the ability to exclude third parties from using your trademark. Um, so, you know, a, a clockmaker needs to be able to describe his products and to use the word clock to do so. So, um, you know, we don't want to confer exclusive rights on that generic word to one single party. Right. Um, so a mark can't be generic. It needs some level of distinctiveness and different marks have different levels of distinctiveness. You know, some marks are, are stronger than others, but as long as a mark has either inherent distinctiveness because it's either arbitrary or fanciful, or it's maybe a descriptive mark that's acquired distinctiveness through secondary meaning, that, that would generally qualify to enable the owner to get a trademark registration. I mentioned arbitrary and fanciful marks briefly, and I wanted to touch on that. Fanciful marks are the most strong trademarks, and generally speaking, the more distinctive a mark is, the better the mark is. The more capable it is of identifying source, the less likely other third parties are to be using similar marks. And just to give a couple examples so you can understand what, what each of these words means, a descriptive mark would be something like Scandinavian Airlines or Concord Pizza. You hear the name, you know what it means. So when I hear Scandinavian Airlines, I know that they're an airline that's based in Scandinavia. That's an example of a mark that's acquired distinctiveness through time because now consumers associate it with one particular Scandinavian Airlines and not any airline that's based in Scandinavia. But that's an example of a descriptive mark. Suggestive marks can be eligible for registration. Some examples of those would be Yeti, Microsoft, or Airbus. You can look at the mark and hear the mark and, and get a sense of what the mark might represent product-wise, but it's not a description. So Yeti, you know, there's an association with the outdoors but the products are camping supplies, thermoses, things like that. So that's not the strongest form of mark, but it certainly can function as a source identifier. The next category up on the distinctiveness spectrum would be arbitrary. That is a commonly used word, but does not describe or suggest any characteristic of the product or service. An example would be Uber. Nothing about Uber necessarily connotes what the service is that it provides under that mark. And finally, the strongest category of marks is fanciful. So these are terms that have no other meaning 
than their role as a trademark. Examples of those would be Pepsi, Kodak, or Exxon. Marks like this are going to sail through a review of distinctiveness at the trademark office. There's really no possibility that a user or a consumer encountering the word Pepsi prior to it acquiring fame would understand that it's a soda product. Obviously, now it's acquired distinctiveness in addition to its fanciful nature, but it is a made-up word. It has no definition in the dictionary, save what it means to consumers. So the more you can have distinctiveness in, in your selection of marks, the easier it is to get through that aspect of the trademark examination. Right. So is it possible for somebody to get a trademark for the word Apple, even though Apple computers is pretty much everywhere? That's a great uh, example. So Apple in and of itself, it passes that threshold distinctiveness test for Apple. Um, you know, Apple for the word computer is an arbitrary word. So, you know, you, you hear the word Apple, you don't think computer. It's not a generic term. But now Apple has registered Apple for a number of goods and services most notably computers, phones, tablets, even now various TV products. So if someone wanted to come into the Apple space, there is a very low chance that they would be able to. Apple is a famous mark. Apple is also a very aggressive company that defends its trademark rights. So, you know, Apple has a strong ability to exclude others from using Apple for similar goods and services. Right. But if my last name was Apple and I wanted to start a car dealership, Apple Motors, would that be a possibility, you think? It's a possibility. <laughs> no, it's an odd, it's odd hypothetical, but I guess the point I'm trying to get across is that, yes, there's extremely strong, strong marks. But is it possible, even though you have a strong market, you have, your goods and services are dramatically different, that there is a possibility of obtaining a registration? For, for the most strong and famous marks, there's an alternative option that those mark owners can use to keep others off the marketplace, and that's a claim of dilution, either through blurring or tarnishment. That means that third parties who are in different areas altogether might not be able to use a mark because it can, it can damage Apple's mark you know, maybe Apple for something that you would consider inappropriate or pornographic. Apple could say this is dilution through tarnishment. Um, it tarnishes the Apple name because it's now associating it with something, you know, right. inappropriate. Right. Understood. So if I have a business or just, I, I guess, some sort of a name or something I want to protect that's mine, when would I, when should I consider getting some kind of, some sort of a tra of trademark protection? You mentioned common law rights that automatically inure to your benefit as, as, as soon as you start using them in commerce, but when should I start looking for registration? Well, I think it's always good to speak to an IP attorney as soon as you have an idea for a business name or a product name. Um, and, and depending on, you know, this, this question, there's so many factors to consider. One, what's your budget? You know, how fermented is your plan? How married are you to the name that you've chosen? But we certainly at least recommend that you consider filing for a trademark registration for your house brand, the mark that, that really identifies your product. One thing that it's really important to do that we, we recommend, it's not required, but we highly recommend is to have a mark that you've selected searched by a trademark attorney before you start the application process and before you start using the mark. 
even if you've been using a mark for 10 years and haven't applied for it and are now considering applying, we'd still recommend having a search. What the search does is we work with a third-party vendor who keeps a large database of a couple different sources of trademark rights. One would obviously be the Federal Trademark Register that exists at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Another would be state trademark registers. And others are third-party unregistered uses. A lot of these can be found online. Secretaries of state, business name registries, domain name registries. We look at all of these, see if there are any third-party uses out there that might conflict with your proposed use. So if you want to apply for Pepsi for soda, a search would reveal that PepsiCo already owns a registration, likely numerous registrations for soda and similar products. So you are unlikely to be able to register it and to be able to use it. This is a really important step. Ideally, you can do it before you select a name because I have had clients select names, get really wedded to the name, and then discover through a search that the name is probably unavailable because an earlier user already started using it. But that's one important aspect of, of the trademark registration and selection process. Have the mark searched, find out how likely it is to be registered, how safe it is to use the mark, and then start the road of applying for the mark at the Federal Trademark Office. So what's the risk that you run if you don't if you don't start the registration process or seek into it? What I'm getting at is what can this startup risk maybe five years down the road by using a name that maybe somebody else is using? Well, you could always uh, get sued by a third party who started using the mark first. So if you know that a name is going to be the name that you use, if you're married to it, the earlier you file, the better. You can actually file a trademark application before you start using the mark. You can file what's called an intent to use application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and that gives you a, a nice cushion. So you get your application date, which is the what's called the priority date, the, the date that the PTO uses to measure you against later comers um, and determine who's first. So you get that priority date whenever you file, but from the time of filing, you actually get give or take three or four years to put the mark into use. So, so you sort of get a placeholder for the mark while you're maybe going through the research and development phase of your business or seeing if you're going to, if you can get traction in the marketplace, beginning to market the name and things like that. I think we actually just saw an example of what might happen when a brand tries to change trade names after years of using a recognized name. In 2020, I think it was singer Anita White brought a trademark infringement claim against the band Lady Annabellum when that band tried to change its name to Lady A. Anita White had been performing under that name for like 20 or 20 or 30 years, so she requested around 10 million bucks to, to give up the name. So the moral of the story, I guess, is settling on an undisputed name earlier rather than later. And those that have gone through this process well, those guys know that the cost and the hassle of rebranding and marketing under a different name can be immense. So we're coming up about the time we need to, to wrap things up. I just wanted you to kind of briefly talk a little bit about what kind of laws govern these trademarks. So what are we getting into state versus federal? The primary federal law that you'll hear about when you talk about trademarks is the Lanham Act. It governs federal practice when it comes to trademarks. And there are state laws that also govern trademarks at the state level. Mm -hmm. 
prior to the passage of the Lanham Act, state law was the primary source of law for trademark practice. Maureen, I got one final question for you then. If somebody owns a trademark and um, they're vigorously trying to defend it and they find that somebody is using their trademark, what's your recommendation? Well, the first step would be to approach the third party user and ask them to stop. You know, before you actually file some sort of formal lawsuit in federal court, it's always better to, to see if you can come to some kind of deal with the third party that's causing your problem. But if that doesn't work, you have a couple different, depending on the situation, you have a couple different avenues you can go down. If someone's applying for a similar mark at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, you can actually oppose the mark during its examination process. So you can tell the trademark office, I already have a mark that looks a lot like this. And I think that there's a high likelihood of consumer confusion. You should not grant a registration to this mark. If it's somebody who's out in the marketplace, but not actually trying to register the mark, then, you know, your course would be the more traditional filing a lawsuit in court to stop the party. But, you know, generally start with a demand letter to the third party and tell them, here are my rights. You're going to cause confusion in the marketplace and I need you to stop. Right. And that typically comes through, I, I would assume having a, like a law firm letterhead is going to have a little bit more oomph to it if you send a cease and desist letter through an attorney. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Excellent. Well, Maureen, I appreciate your time and I appreciate the information we got from you today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, I hope to speak to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. This has been an episode of the Vori's IP VIP podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to speak to either myself or any of the guests, please feel free to reach out to us. You can contact us through Vori's website or via the Vori's Intellectual Property Updates webpage on LinkedIn. If you have a suggestion for a podcast topic or would like to recommend a particular guest, we'd love to hear from you. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I hope you can join us next time.